The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Well, good evening. Gosh, what a great privilege it is. What a joy it is to be here with you tonight. Um, I haven't been up here in a little while. That's uh, more about the, the busyness of this year. It's been a full year. I can't believe it's almost over. Uh, but what a joy to be here tonight. I, um, I have as my topic tonight, total depravity. So something cheerful as we get in the mood for Thanksgiving and the holidays. Um, but uh, I would, uh, would like to pray for, for us first. And uh, if you'll bow your heads with me, we'll begin. Well, Heavenly Father, it is truly a joy to be in this place tonight with these men and women, these brothers and sisters in Christ and Lord, as we look at this difficult topic, uh, we ask that you would help remind us that it is you that opens blind eyes. Lord, it is you that opens deaf ears. It is you that replaces the stony hearts we once had with flesh, soft hearts to receive and respond to your gospel. And so, Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for the opportunity to gather tonight in this place and ask that as I say these words, that, uh, that they would be your words, Lord, that I would um, be small and you would be great in this place. That's our prayer. We are eager to, to hear your word tonight, Lord, and uh, to respond to your word and giving you all glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, after you know, a couple of weeks away, we've had a few things, a business meeting and some other things going on. We picked back up with our study of the Reformed theology uh, tonight. And you may recall from all the way back in August when we started this that uh, we're looking at really the high points of, uh, of a system of beliefs that uh, has its historical roots at about the 16th century for the uh, Protestant Reformation. The reason that we're exploring these basics in, uh, in this theology is because we have this deep conviction, of course, that God is sovereign over all things and that his, this truth defines and shapes every part of our life and every part of our doctrine. And so the Reformation at its heart was a recovery, as, uh, as you've heard all these weeks, it was a recovery of the gospel, the true gospel of Jesus Christ. The Reformation itself was a, a political, a cultural, and a religious turning point that actually changed the course of history. We heard, I mean, we've heard in some of the, the messages so far just the impact that it had on our country. Even uh, this morning, Grant talked about uh, really Thanksgiving, the first Thanksgiving, and how much of that was the idea that we were giving thanks back to God who has given us all things. And so, uh, as Grant said this morning, we, this is why we love reform, reform theology, because it emphasizes uh, the grace of God and Christ. And we see uh, in ourselves, uh, we see ourselves as depraved sinners in need of salvation. 
and deserving God's wrath. But with Christ, we have a great Savior. And so Christ needs to be worshiped. He needs to be glorified. He needs to be honored. Um, and as we, as we think about these things, we also see that salvation is accomplished wholly and completely by him alone. And so as we think about the solas that we have been, uh, we've been learning about up to now, we, we know that this justification, uh, our salvation is by faith alone, uh, or by, by grace alone, excuse me, through faith alone in Christ alone. And, and so we've covered all of those. The last time we were here, we actually heard about grace alone. And, and so uh, what I'm going to do tonight is just sort of take a little bit of, a, of an opportunity to dig a little deeper into just how great this grace is that we have. Uh, so we're going to go from the solas tonight, take a little bit of a detour or a side, side road, really, and we're going to start looking at one of the doctrines of grace. You've probably heard them called the, um, the five points of Calvinism, um, and that, that can be a little bit confusing to some people. Sometimes it's a little off-putting, but uh, we're not going to focus so much on the history of this tonight. I want to get right into the, the meat of this because... Uh, as we look at these doctrines, it really, as I said, it helps us to understand uh, better who God is. These biblical doctrines, they actually, that flow out of the Reformation, they stoke the fires within us, the fire in our heart. It, uh, it creates this great affection, right, for God and for the work that he's done. And as we grow in the knowledge of who he is, um, we, we get to know him better, but we also get to know ourselves better. And perhaps the most crucial knowledge that we can have is to discover what God is like in salvation. I wonder if you would turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. As we think about God, as we think about ourselves in the presence of a holy God, I think this, uh, this helps paint a picture. Isaiah chapter 6. It says, in the, year of, uh, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, Holy is the Lord God of hosts, or the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And it says, the foundations of the thresholds shook, and the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And look at what he says. He says, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So Isaiah is describing in this, in this passage here, he's, he's describing this encounter that he has with God himself uh, in this vision. And, and, and we see God, the Lord God is, is in, this, in his temple. He's, he's in a throne. He's high and exalted. He's, he's lifted up in the temple. He's wearing his kingly robes. 
And by the way, this in ancient times, the, the length of the train of your road show, robe showed your importance. We see this uh, today in, uh, in weddings, don't we? So this long train that follows after shows who is the most important person in the room. And so that's what Isaiah is, is noting here, that the, not only is, is God's uh, uh, kingly robes, do they have a long train, but they actually fill the entire room. The room is filled with smoke. And of course, he talks about the fact that he has these angels, these seraphim. Uh, seraphim uh, are fiery ones. They're, they're magnificent creatures. And they're surrounding uh, our heavenly king. And they're all shouting, holy, holy, holy. Three times this trifold uh, worship of, of the king. It talks about not just an aspect of God's character, but it talks about his total being. He is holy. He is the, the absolute standard of holiness. Well, standing in the presence of God's glory, Isaiah himself, it says, is shaken to the core. So not only is this the foundations of the building shaken, uh, and, and by the way, can you imagine, we just, we just uh, enjoyed a time of worship, singing our songs. What if our passion, what if our intensity of our worship actually shook this building? Anybody ever been in, a, in an earthquake before? I remember being in an earthquake here in Raleigh, of all places. We had an earthquake, and I was in the middle of an office in a meeting, and all of a sudden, I just the house that I was in, it just started to jump. And I thought, what in the world is that? And I, there was a radio on also in our office, and I heard immediately a report. It was tuned to New York, and they said, I think we've just uh, experienced an earthquake. So not just in Raleigh, but all the way up the East Coast. I mean, it's pretty uh, frightening thing. Uh, but uh, anyway, this is, this, is what, this is part of what Isaiah is experiencing. He is, he's hearing these, this worship, seeing God in his, uh, in his holiness, in his glory, filling this space, smoke. You, you kind of get the idea. There's smoke and, and, uh, and the, these fiery angels that are surrounding him. And as, as Isaiah sees it, he's shaken to his core. He's overwhelmed too. He's in the presence of God Almighty, and he's overwhelmed with his unworthiness. Have you ever been in, the, in a place where you just felt completely out of place? Well, that's the picture of Isaiah here. Isaiah is in his temple, and he's like, man, I, I, I shouldn't be here. He's so unworthy. When confronted with God's holy presence, he actually cries out in despair. And, uh, and we see that he, he himself describes uh, not just his own condition. He says, I, I am a man of unclean lips, but he also says he's surrounded by people with unclean lips. Why do you think lips are so important? What's, what is the point about him saying li unclean lips here? Well, when we go to Matthew twelve thirty four. Jesus uh, here says that for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And, and maybe he's thinking about things that he's saying, but you know, one of the things that you and I, just as a, as a gauge for what's going on in our hearts, uh, we, just, we, we check to see what comes out of our mouth. The Bible says, Jesus himself says, that whatever comes out of our mouth is, is essentially uh, an indicator of what is in our hearts, what is at the core of our being. And so he, uh, he understands, he understands that uh, at the core of his being is something not particularly pretty. Well, 
Isaiah sensed the depths of his depravity when confronted with God's holy presence, and he confesses that he's not alone. He says, I'm in the midst of others who are just like me. Isaiah had experienced precisely what the Bible teaches about the condition of men and women. Our hearts are corrupt. Our minds are darkened. Our desires are enslaved to the passions of our flesh. Before we can truly see the unvarnished truth about ourselves, however, very often we have to have an encounter with the one true God. What this is uh, really is as we think about our theology, as we think about the study of God, it it undoubtedly leads us to think about ourselves in relation to God. So our theology actually informs our anthropology, biblical anthropology, the way that man relates to God. As we develop a better understanding of how we are, who we are, then we also see a a, a greater emphasis on who God is. They sort of go back and forth and they, they inform one another. But here's Isaiah in the presence of a holy God, and he's coming very quickly to an understanding of, of just how, uh, how unworthy he is. Well, reading this encounter causes us to consider the problem of our own sin, doesn't it, before a holy God. If the one, uh, one of the holiest men in Israel, Isaiah, called and commissioned by God to be his prophet, can come undone. It says un, he's, he becomes undone at the thought of being in, in, in the presence of God. If he can become undone by the profound sense of his iniquity in the presence of God, then what should we think about our own nature and standing before him? Well, this question is the heart, really, of the doctrine of total depravity. Now, total depravity, uh, you've probably heard this term before. Uh, You've probably even studied it. In fact, I was telling Jeff, he could probably be up here teaching it. We talked about it a little bit before, and he had it solid. He had it down when he was telling me about total depravity earlier today. But this question of, of what we should think about our own standing before God is at the heart of this doctrine. Total depravity, uh, and this is one of the things Jeff and I were talking about, is often misunderstood or misconstrued to mean utter or absolute depravity. Moreover, the word depravity itself brings to mind the most extreme examples of moral corruption and perversion in our society. Let me read, tell you what I saw this week uh, or last week, a story that ran on, I think it was CBS uh, internet, uh, website. Uh, CBS website reported last week on the attack in Israel, noted uh, an, an, an Israeli services or Israeli security forces representative, rather, described the brutality that she witnessed in the aftermath of Hamas of the Hamas attack, saying Depra- the depravity, that's the word, the depravity of it is haunting. So that's the way that we typically think of the word depravity, right? I mean, we can't even, I, I mean, I, some of the things that I heard, I, I wouldn't even tell somebody else about. They were so horrific. And that's just one example of what man can do to man, right? We, I'm sure that you have, have witnessed or heard about or read about things that, that, uh, that man has done to one another, that adults have done to children, that uh, men have done to women and vice versa. Uh, you've heard of horrible accounts. If you're a, a student of history, if you've read anything about the great wars, then you, you know what depravity looks like. 
And so it can be a little bit uh, confusing when we talk about total depravity. Man's depravity, though, refers to the extent of his corruption and sin. Total depravity doesn't mean that human beings are as wicked as they possibly can be. It, it actually, it actually uh, is a term that, uh, that talks about the nature uh, of their corruption. Their nature is corrupt, it's perverse and sinful uh, in totality, right? So think about it like this. If, if, you had a, if you had a glass of water in front of you and, and I, had, uh, I had some kind of liquefied poison and, and I was going to just drop that little bit of poison in there, uh, how much of that water, where, which, which part of that glass of water would you want to drink? Well, I mean, you know, in fact, if it had a little bit of red food coloring in it, I dropped it in there, you would see that food coloring. It would start to spread out and the entire part, every bit of that water would suddenly turn red, right? So again, what, which part would you drink if you knew that it was poison? Well, that's kind of the way sin works. Sin is like a poison that it's inside of us and it spreads to every aspect of our, of our nature. So because of the possibility of misunderstanding and confusion, some people have replaced the term total depravity with radical corruption, which may be a better uh, expression of the idea. I think uh, uh, R.C. Sproul uh, said, uh, came up with, coined this term, radical corruption. He went on to say that radical comes from uh, the Latin word that means root. So again, thinking about what, what does this mean? Total radical the root, the very root, our essence, root. Another good word is core. Think about core. Core is actually from a, a Latin word that means heart. So that gets right to the point, right? So our depravity uh, is not something on the outside. It's not the behaviors that we do that makes us uh, depraved, right? That makes us, it's, it's on the inside. It's something that happens deep within, Whatever term you use, this doctrine expresses the view that as a result of the fall, the man's whole being, his mind, his heart, his body, his spirit have been corrupted by sin. The effects of the fall, they penetrate the core, the heart of the man, all the way to the very center of his being. And this leads us to, to the understanding that we are, we are not sinners because we sin, we sin because we are sinners. At our very core, we are sinners. And it goes on to say, or, or it goes on to, this doctrine goes on to say that because we are uh, totally depraved, because we are radically corrupted, our minds are darkened, so we cannot see, we cannot understand the truth of God. Our hearts are defiled, so we cannot love the truth of God. Our wills are enslaved and we cannot believe or pursue the truth. A.W. Pink explains that the entrance of sin into the human constitution has affected every part of the faculty of man's being. He continues, man is unable to realize his own aspirations and materialize his own ideals. He cannot do the things that he would. There is a moral inability which paralyzes him. So the question of this doctrine really addresses not whether man and woman sin, 
The truth, really, of that is established every night on the nightly news. Every time you uh, look at a website, a news website, it's also established in our very own hearts. When you look at your own life and the life of those around us. But to what extent, this is the question, to what extent has sin corrupted our nature? Another way to put it is just how bad are we? Well, the answer to this question has actually been debated throughout church history. And Dr. John Gerstner, a a professor of church history and theologian, says this. Throughout the history of the church, the church has provided three views of man's condition. One is well, one is sick, and one is dead. The Christian view of man is vitally important because at various points in history, we'll find that cultural assumptions and philosophical perspectives about the nature of humanity have led to great distortions of the biblical doctrines in Christianity, especially an understanding of salvation itself. So it may be helpful to take a quick look at what these three segments... Now, listen... I find this interesting that these are three segments of the Christian church that he's talking about. These three segments of the Christian church. Let's take a look at these before we go a little deeper. Diagnosing the spiritual health of man. Think about this as uh, it's like a doctor's appointment when you go into the doctor and and this question of how bad am I is kind of like, you know, the, the doctor has done all the diagnostic tests on you, calls you in for a consult and you say, well, just tell me what's wrong. Tell me how bad is it, right? Well, the first, the first uh, segment was well, okay? So the answer is well. This is the way that, uh, that some in the church believe man's condition uh, is represented, right? So well, healthy. He's healthy. Uh, man is basically good and simply in need of a good example or the right kind of instruction, Right? We talked about this. Actually, you heard about this last time we got together. Uh, Grant talked about uh, Pelagius. This was his view, right? that man is essentially born uh, a blank slate, and, and he is capable of, of achieving uh, perfection. If he, just, if he just behaves, if he just gets the right example, if he just gets the right instruction, uh, he's capable. Well, to be well... Uh, it says man is, is basically good. He's simply in need of these things. Uh, the people that believe themselves well, they have a low view of God. They have a low view of God's word, don't they? Man can help himself, it says. Jesus' sacrificial death was not necessary, right? Because God loves all people. He wouldn't send them to hell. Have you heard that today in church? There are churches that believe this, right? That God, just, God is a God of love and, and no one's ultimately going to go to hell. Social gospel is their defining issue. And because they don't really believe in hell, they don't believe that salvation is necessary, that, uh, that they start to look at other things. Uh, they don't certainly believe that the, that the word of God is authoritative, so they start to look at other things to inform how they live their lives. So they look at, at, uh, at science. They look at uh, secular sciences and, uh, and philosophy and reason and thinking. This could be said uh, that uh, uh, this, is a, this is the liberal, what's called the liberal church. And, and church is, is a misnomer here, isn't it? 
Uh, I, Russ Andrews sent me a, a note today. He attached a book by uh, Gresham Machen called Christianity and Liberalism. There's a reason why there's an ampersand between the two, because one is Christianity and one is not. So liberalism, the liberal view is not Christian. It's not a Christian view. How could it be? If they don't believe that Jesus' death on the cross was needed, I mean, the whole gospel, they've gutted the whole gospel at that point. So how could it be, how could it be Christianity? Well, the second view is sick, right? So one, one group is well, one group is sick, right? So this is, a, this is a view that believes that man is in fact affected by sin, but he has the power to, to reach out and accept God's grace. This is, you've probably heard this analogy. It's like a drowning person, right? The, uh, the sinner is like a drowning person and, 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 and God sends out this lifesaver. And, and all the drowning person has to do is, is just reach out, right? But he is able to reach out. And, and quite frankly, he, not only does he, is he able to reach out, but he can decide whether or not he wants to reach out. He can either take the life preserver, right? And, and he, can, he can accept God's grace and then be regenerated and experience new birth, or, or he has the freedom to resist it, to say, no, no, no I'll wait for something better to come along and perish. So this is the picture of a sick man. This is, this is called partial partiality. The sick man is also seated in the church, but uh, it's, it's important to know that uh, this person, the belief is that the man is not helpless spiritually. God's grace enables uh, repentance and belief. So uh, this repentance and belief come from God's grace, but God doesn't interfere with his freedom. He has free will, he says. He has free will to choose good or evil. His internal, eternal destiny depends on what choice he makes. So he has the ability to make the choice the eternal destiny he has is, is really dependent on which choice he makes. So he can cooperate with God. And, and in cooperating with God, like I said, he can experience new birth uh, or he can resist. But, but regeneration, this new birth, is not required for him to have faith. For the sick man, faith precedes the regeneration. Faith precedes the, the new birth. And so we see a, a flaw there, right? That's, that's, a, that's a huge flaw. This again, this is the problem that we see here is that to the, the view of the sick man is, uh, is one that emphasizes man's ability, man's ability and his freedom to choose. Uh, he cooperates with God. So this particular view is, is what's called synergistic, right? So sin uh, being together and and egistic, which is which is ergo, which is a a, a word that means to work. So uh, together work. So it's it's cooperative. Salvation is uh, is is dependent on his choice. So in this case, man's response is the deciding factor. And then there's the dead man. And this is the view of, of the Reformed faith. This is, uh, this is the view of total depravity. In this case, every man, every aspect of man 
His mind, his heart, his soul, his body is corrupted by sin. He's incapable of, of doing any kind of good that is acceptable to God, right? Uh, all of his righteous acts are considered what? Filthy rags, right? That's what the Bible says. The emphasis here is on the sovereignty of God. That's what we talked about before and, and God's right to choose people. So it's not man choosing God in this case. It's God choosing people for salvation. God is ultimately here the deciding factor. So it's not man. It's not man's choice, but God's grace that is the deciding factor in the salvation of people. Because man is dead, he is unable in and of himself to savingly believe the gospel. Salvation then here is called monergistic, right? So that's one work. One, one person is doing the work, and that's God. We have nothing to do with it. God did not create man uh, originally with this condition. But as we look at this, I think it's, it's, it's important to recognize that, again, Gerstner talks about these three uh, segments within the Christian church. So what are we to make of that? Well, one, the, the, the people that are well... As we already said, they, they're, they're in the Christian church. They call themselves Christians. There's a sign out front that says whatever the name of the church is. There's probably some kind of a, a, a banner or a flag out there that talks about all the people that are welcome because God is love. Um, but they, they are not, this is, as I said, they are not Christians because they reject the, the gospel. And then we have uh, the the sick part of the church, <laughs> the sick Christians, right? Um, they are part of the church, and, and quite frankly, they do believe in the saving grace of God, right? They, they understand, and, and, and they, could, they are, in fact, Christian. They just have an, they, their view is one that is a view in error. Now, here's the most amazing thing. Well, amazing, I guess, in some respects and completely predictable in others, so the well, so-called well Christians and the sick Christians, they make up the majority of the church. Those that's, that have the view of, of man being dead, that's the remnant. <laughs> that's, that's the minority report. And so we have, we have you know, we have to ask, well, what, what's going on here? And part of that, I think, and I don't want to get into a whole lot of history on this because it'll just, it'll, it'll take, us, take us all night long. I don't think you probably have all night long. But we see throughout the history of the church, uh, since the Reformation, we see these attacks that happen on the church. We see these, um, well, we saw it last week or, or last time we got together when, when Grant talked about Pelagius, the Pelagian controversy where you had a view, Augustine, that argued the view uh, very early in the church history uh, that, that is, it, it is, it's, this, it's this view, right, that man is incapable, uh, that he is helpless, that he needs God's grace, is totally dependent on God. Pelagian comes along and says, no, I don't, I don't think that's true. I think man uh, is capable. I think he is basically good. And so they, the church had to deal with that. Later, after the Reformation, or during the Reformation, there were similar attacks that happened. After the Reformation, continued attacks. So there was uh, the Enlightenment, the period of Enlightenment, where reason and humanity became uh, the, the goal, the ideal. And, and so the whole idea of, of grace, grace provided and grace applied, were completely uh, uh, rejected. 
And so you had a group uh, of, uh, of Armenians also. We talked about, uh, we've talked about Armenians in the past here that, uh, that had this view. They, they, uh, went, they had a conflict, the, the Armenian controversy with the Calvinists. Uh, again, I, I don't want to go into a lot of history, but as you look at this attack, you see that there were some within the church that went with this, this, this new view, right? It was novel. It was, the, it was based on this false premise that look, I know, I know man can do good things. And so if he can do good things, then I, I, I can't believe that he's totally depraved. And so I, I don't care what the Bible says, I'm gonna go with what I think. This new philosophy sounds pretty good, I think I'll, I'll go there. And so it, is, it has a corrupting influence. And, and honestly, to this day, it has a corrupting influence. I've had people actually in my, in my life group that have expressed the view. They've talked about our free will, our ability to choose. Uh, and we do have the ability uh, to choose. The problem is with a dead person, our, our choice is always evil. Our good deeds are always evil. Why is that? Why is, it, why is it that our good deeds are considered evil? Why are they considered unrighteous? Well, the reason that our good deeds are considered uh, unrighteous is because of of one of three things. We didn't do them the right way, God's way. We didn't do them at the right time, God's time. But most importantly, we didn't do them to glorify God. That's the difference. That's what makes a, a, a deed good or a, good, a, a deed righteous is that it has to, it has to, be, uh, it has to be righteous from God's perspective, not ours. If we're comparing good deeds uh, on a human level, we're always going to look to people and say, oh, they've got to be good. They've got to be a Christian. Look at all the great things that they do. But usually, you know, our, our good deeds are, are motivated by reasons that aren't to glorify God. They're usually to glorify self, or they're usually done to preserve a loved one or to preserve ourselves, or to uh, make ourselves look good, whatever the, the reason if the reason is not to ultimately glorify God, it is not a good deed, and therefore it is not acceptable to God. Well, moving on, I just want to talk about the fact that God didn't create man with this corrupt condition. We know that as we look at Genesis uh, chapters 1 and 2. As we saw the creation, we saw that, that God uh, created everything in the beginning and called it very good. And, uh, and Adam's will was free from sin's power and control at that point. He was under no compulsion to choose evil or good. Under, uh, however, Adam brought uh, spiritual death to himself and, and then to his descendants through the fall. He and his offspring lost the ability to choose spiritually uh, good over evil. And as a result of Adam's sin, all men were born in sin by nature and spiritually dead. Let's take a look at that here. So this is, this is one of the results of the fall is that we uh, have, are spiritually dead. God created humans to serve him as his image bearers, right? As representatives in creation. God gave Adam life and, and virtually free reign in this beautiful garden that he placed him in. And God warned him though, that if he was to eat of the fruit of the tree of, uh, of uh, knowledge of good and evil, that uh, there would be a, a, a penalty, uh, he would die. Genesis two seventeen says, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day, you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. Because of Adam's disobedience here, he brought spiritual death upon himself 
and the entire human race. This is the, the doctrine of original sin. This is the passing on of the, of the consequences of what he did. Romans 5, 12 talks about this. It says, therefore, just as sin entered the world, world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, I think this is very helpful. Paul's writing in Ephesians, he says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Listen, not only were you dead, you were still walking around physically. You were alive physically. You were dead spiritually, but you were still doing things in life, right? It says that as you're doing those things as a living person, you're following the course of this world. World, you know, World means the, the system, this system that is completely opposed to God. He goes on to say that you're also following the prince of the power of the air. You're under the influence of Satan. So not only are you being influenced by the world, not only are you being pressed into the world's uh, uh, desires for what you should do and, and, and be, but you're also being influenced by Satan himself. It says the spirit that is now in work in the uh, in the sons of disobedience. This, that, was, that was what we were before we believed we were sons and daughters of disobedience. And the Spirit was working in us. That means that everything that we did, there was an influence. There was a worldly influence. The world itself, the system was, was influencing poor choices. The, and the devil himself was, was influencing us. But look, this isn't a case of the devil made me do it. This isn't a case that, you know, my friend told me to do it and I just did it. It's not the world or the devil. Listen to how he goes on. He says, he says the, this, among, uh, among whom we all once lived, right? So this is, these are the people that he's talking about in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So the passions of our flesh and the desires of our body, that's, that's what we want to do. The world and the devil simply just put it on a platter and we do it. So it's, we're not innocent in this. We, uh, we want to do it. We desire to do it. It's occupying our mind and our hearts all the time before we're, we become Christians. And it say, he goes on to say that, that you were by nature children of wrath. So that, that shows us the penalty right there because of the choices that we make, because of the desires that we have, because we're allowing the world and the devil to influence, we're buying into their game plan that we are, in fact, by nature, children of wrath. This is who we are as a result of Adam's fall. We are spiritually dead, and we're born into this condition David wrote that he, as well as all of humanity, was born in sin. Psalm 51, 5 says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Psalm 58, 3 says, Even from birth the wicked grow astray. From the womb they are wayward, spreading lies. Since men are born into sin and by nature spiritually dead, they must be regenerated. So that's the, we have the problem, we're dead the only, way that the, the, the only way that keeps us from experiencing the wrath of God is we must be reborn. We need to be regenerated. 
This has to happen if we want to enter God's kingdom. John 3, 5 through 7 says that Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be, what, born again. But how? Do I do it? How how do we become born again? Well, I want you to take a look with me at chapter 3. Because lest we think that we have anything to do with our rebirth, Paul has a few things that he wants to say. He provides this series, really, of Old Testament passages to provide a clear picture of the total depravity of man and how it manifests in our experience. He wants us to understand uh, completely our inability to save ourselves. And he examines the human condition from top to bottom. This is kind of like a CT scan. So the first, I'm going to read this and then we'll come back and kind of take a look at it. He says, as it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, and they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood in their paths, and ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So the unrighteousness of fallen man. He's spiritually dead. He's also unrighteous. Romans 3.10 tells us uh, that we're unrighteous. And it says righteousness is, a, is, is our status. That, that's, that's how God sees us. It's a legal concept that has to do with our legal status before God. A person, uh, for a person to be clear, declared righteous in God's eyes, he must obey the law. Romans 2.13 says, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Paul later points out, though, that this person living under the law would have to obey it perfectly. Unless a person is able to satisfy these terms, the wrath of God would remain on him. So, is it possible Is it possible that someone could keep the law perfectly? Uh, Grant mentioned this morning that John Wesley had the doctrine of perfection. So that, yeah, yeah, actually man could, he could live a perfect life. Pelagius said the same thing. They even said that they had examples of people who did it. They couldn't name them when asked. But So is it possible? Well, no. Ephesians 2.3 says that you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All of mankind suffers from this condition. Not only are we unrighteous, but we have darkened minds, the darkened minds of fallen men. Not just unrighteous, but we are lawbreakers. Sin has corrupted man's thinking in such an extent that we can't understand the truth about ourselves. We, we don't understand the truth about the world, and we certainly don't understand the truth about God. Romans 3.11 says, no one understands. You know, our minds may be active, they may be open to all kinds of new ideas and and brilliant concepts, and yet they're like a broken radio receiver. They have the lack of of ability to respond to anything. I don't know if y'all remember this. In in 1937, uh, Amelia Earhart was on a a historic trip, at least it started it, 
uh, to circumnavigate the globe in a small plane. And somewhere in the Pacific, uh, she got lost. And what's interesting in that story is that there was a, a naval ship that was communicating or trying to communicate with her. It could hear her. Her radio was tuned apparently to the right frequency and she was broadcasting all the way. I'm lost. I don't see you. Where are you? Help me to find, uh, find you. Tell me, tell me the right heading. And she said, I'm low on fuel. And, and the, radio on the radio operator on the boat continued to try and broadcast this message to save her, but she never received it. In fact, it was clear she didn't receive it because they would send specific messages and, and it was clear from her response that she couldn't hear them. So this is, this is kind of the way our darkened minds respond. There, there is a, a, a plan for salvation. And, and, and in some cases, we're asking for it. How do I, how do I get out of this mess? Um, how can I be a better person is usually the way, way people say it. But our, our minds are broken like that radio, and we cannot receive the answer. 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us why the natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Romans 8, 7, 8 says, for the, for the mind that is set on the flesh, so that's the mind of the flesh, literally, is hostile to God. It's not just that we're not receiving a message, but any kind of message that we do see, if somebody tells us about God, it, it actually causes us in this, in this depraved state to be hostile towards God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can not. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So the totality of man's depravity is seen in his moral and spiritual inability to accept the good news of the gospel. But not only is his mind darkened, but his heart is also desperately corrupt. Paul goes on to declare that no one seeks God, verse 11. Can it be true that no one seeks God? I mean, after all, we had this whole movement of seeker services, right? Surely people are seeking God. But doesn't, uh, doesn't man search for something to satisfy the deepest yearnings? You know, uh, you and I are created to worship. You and I are created to yearn for God and the relationship that we might have with him. And yet, in our, in our fallen state, in our depraved state, our corrupt state, uh, we don't see that as the answer. We don't see God as the answer. Besides that, if we just read that the, that the depraved heart, the corrupt heart and darkened mind uh, hates God, is hostile towards God, then why would anybody search for something they hate? Galatians 5.17 also gives us a great view here. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, and they oppo they're opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So our hearts are so wicked, our hearts are so corrupt that we don't even do the things we want to do but we can't, even if we, even if we tried. Because the heart of man is corrupted in sin, we won't seek for God. And in the quest for meaning, for truth, for salvation, for, for, for comfort, mankind will turn anywhere except God. John Calvin wrote that the heart of man was a perpetual factory of idols, identifying it as the ultimate source of false worship. 
While unregenerate people won't seek God, they will try to satisfy their yearnings, their deep needs, their wicked hearts with the blessings of God. This is a picture of of depraved people. Depraved people have no uh, compunction, uh, always willing to enjoy the gifts of God as long as they don't have to deal with God the giver. John 3.19 says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved darkness. So even as people might experience God's light in some way, they reject it. They run away. They're like the little critters in some of, the, some of our houses that when you flip on the light, they go scurrying, right? That's a picture right there. Fallen man cannot stand before a holy God. His sins against God, he sins against God because that is his nature. He is spiritually unable to accept God's truth. And rather than seeking for God, he chases everything else to satisfy his wicked heart's desire. And then Paul declares uh, that fallen man is also enslaved. His will is enslaved to sin. The bondage of fallen man. This is like that diagnostic test. We, again, we're back in the doctor's office. And Paul really kind of goes from head to toe and starts to show how sin manifests in, uh, in this person. Romans uh, 3.12 says, All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So this internal rot, right? This internal rot that is, that is, is, uh, is part of every uh, unregenerate person starts deep inside, but it starts to work its way out. And it's evident as Paul catalogs the way that uh, this depravity manifests in the life of the unbeliever. He notes that virtually every part of the body is corrupted by sin. Paul's list of offenses here are convicting as we start to see ourselves in this. You know, we talked about this this morning. The fact that even as regenerate believers, we still have this tension in our lives. There's still a desire to run away. We talked about this in life class this morning. Sometimes we have this wonderful discipline of Bible study and prayer. We start our day with it and we go, uh, we go months without any problem. And then all of a sudden, for whatever reason, I just don't feel like doing it today. And then that day turns into two days and that two days turns into a week and then it turns into a month. And pretty soon you're wondering, whoa, I wonder whatever happened. So there's this tension still exists in us But as Paul lists out these offenses, it convicts us, doesn't it? We recognize ourselves in in these vivid descriptions of unsavory words that we may say. Anybody say any unsavory words to people? Anybody driving traffic? What about unbridled anger? Again, traffic. What about malice towards other? Traffic. You can tell I have trouble with traffic. Um, Paul sums it up, though, as he cites Psalm 36. He says, there is no fear of God before, there, before our eyes. So as you look at that list there, we see their throat is like an open grave. This is, the, this is, the, this is that vile, the vile words that come out. They're, they're like the smell from a grave, right? The, the, the poison of a, of a viper, is, is on our lips. Uh, we see that, that our feet, we are, we are quick to, to, to be violent. Anger springs up. 
we have malice towards other. We, and this, this is not something that's necessarily acted out. It could just be in your heart. You, you may know about it. Nobody else does. But the fact that you know about it shows that this is true. This tension continues to exist. And it's because there's no fear in God's eyes. Man claims that his will is absolutely free. And yet the Bible says that he is in bondage to sin and Satan. John 8, 34 uh, says that Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Romans 6, 20, similarly. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. John 8, 44, you are, the, uh, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. So this, let's disabuse the notion that there is this free will, that we have the ability to, to do good. Paul has just, he's just delivered a death blow to that notion. Such is the totality of man's depravity that despite the gracious offer of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he's not able even in and of himself to turn to God. He just can't. Because of the fall, man is dead. He is unable in and of himself to savingly believe the gospel. He needs the Spirit of God to cause him to be born again. Ephesians 2.1 says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We saw that. That's the bad news. So what are we to do? We're dead. But Ephesians 2, 4 through 9 Ephesians 4, two of the greatest, most powerful, most beautiful, most wonderful, most glorious words in the Bible, but God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages you might show the immeasurable graces of his grace and kindness towards you, towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And even this faith is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast, so that no one may claim glory. It's by grace. By grace, you have been saved and you have nothing to do with it. Nothing. Our salvation is all of grace. We were dead in our trespasses and incapable of doing anything, but God made us alive. God made us alive. Once dead, now alive together with Christ, this is how regeneration happens. Being born again is an act of God. We heard this this morning, Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is, this is important. This is something that's really important. We, we think about uh, the, the three segments of the church, the, the well, the healthy one, the so-called healthy one, who's not really a Christian at all, and the sick Christian and the dead Christian. Well, what's important for the dead Christian is it's not just grace provided. It's not just a lifesaver, but it's grace applied. That's the difference. And that's what we see here. 
The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. It is Christ living in you. The Son of God who loved me, that was the motivation. He did it out of love, and he gave himself for me. Paul goes on to write, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ's death was for no purpose. Why would Christ have to die if you had anything to do with your salvation? We have nothing to do with it. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Therefore, and you're going to hear about this in the coming weeks, all glory belongs to God alone. All right, so as we wrap up, I want to give you some takeaways. The doctrine of total depravity, why, why is it important? Why do we need to know it? Why do we need to believe it? Why do we need to study it? Why do we need to think about it? Well, understanding this doctrine will help us to realize our utter dependence on God. It's all God. Understanding this doctrine also teaches us to vigorously guard against the sin in our lives and be patient with the sins of others. Understanding this doctrine also reminds us to preach Christ and him crucified and then watch the Spirit work. There's none of this manipulation. There's none of this, I'm going to preach some of God's word, but not all of it. Just preach Christ and him crucified and let the Spirit do his work. Understanding this doctrine also teaches us to give glory to God, ultimately driving us to prayer and praise. So that's, that's the doctrine of total depravity or radical corruption. You know, it's, a, it's an ugly picture of what we once were. And the Bible is explicit in what that once looked like. But it's when we understand how desperate we were, it makes us fall on our face. It makes us praise God with the intensity and the passion to shake the foundations of a building. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.